the lesson this morning is one of the parables that Jesus tells. And this particular parable uh, is in regard to a wedding feast. So let me kind of describe for you what the typical wedding feast was like in the Orient at that time, the time in which Jesus lived, because it, it identifies so well with this parable that is told. Typically, when the wedding took place, the ceremony uh, took place in the house of the father of the bride. It was his responsibility uh, to have several days of feasting associated with this, and so you need to think in terms of the wedding, not just the, the ceremony, but the whole event is called the wedding. So what would happen is that there would be the ceremony, of course, there would be the, the time of rejoicing, the feasting together, and after a couple of days of that, the uh, servants there in the house of the father of the bride would begin to escort the couple to their new home. That would be the place that the bridegroom had prepared for, for himself and for his wife. Now, they would go out that evening uh, to do this at the end of the last feast there at the house of the father of the bride. And they would escort this couple along the way. But also, the bridegroom has servants in his own household who are coming to them. This is part of the custom. They're coming to the newlywed couple, and the friends have with them from the house of the father of the bride, and they go together now to the bridegroom's house. And there, again, is a feast that will take place, his servants having already prepared it. And so when they go in, they enter in and enjoy this last period of time of feasting. And all of this is called the marriage or the wedding. So this is a circumstance that Jesus begins to unfold for us in Matthew chapter 25. I caution you to say that the parable is Matthew 25 verses 1 through 13, if you want to look at it uh, in your text. But in verse 13, the uh, conclusion to this parable is, For neither do you know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The admonition is to watch, therefore, because you do not know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This parable, therefore, is about a judgment day situation, the judgment day situation. So now let's go back to verse 1 in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Let's go back to there and begin to see how it is that this parable unfolds. Jesus says, first of all, that the kingdom of heaven is likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, notice the kingdom of heaven is likened unto these ten virgins. A little bit more about that in a moment. But anyway, as you know the story, five of these were wise and five were foolish. The five who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. The five who were wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And as they were waiting for the bridegroom, the bridegroom tarried, and they all fell asleep. They slumbered and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry heard. And the cry was, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And so all ten of these virgins arise, and they're going to go out to meet the bridegroom. But the foolish virgins say to the wise virgins, as they trim their lamps, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the five that are wise say to the others, No, they're not willing to share that oil. The reason that they give is because there may not be enough oil for you and us. 
But rather you go to where those who sell are and you buy some for yourself. And while they were gone, that is while the foolish ones were gone to try to buy oil, the bridegroom in fact came. And those who were ready went in with him into the house and the door was shut. Now later, the foolish virgins return to the house. They come to the house and they say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But Jesus says to them, no, I say assuredly to you, I do not know you. Therefore watch, for neither do you know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, the different elements that are found in the story here, in the parable here, represent certain things. The kingdom of heaven, of course, represents heaven. It represents uh, the kingdom of God. That's what it represents. The virgins that are here, notice they are uh, ten of them. I don't think that that number <laughs> indicates how many people are going to be in heaven or, or not. I don't mean that. But I do mean to say that they are uh, representative of people that are in the kingdom. They're representative of people that are in the kingdom of God. They're representative of people that are in the church. Because you see, the kingdom and the church are the same thing. I'm sure you recall that in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he asked them, who do men say that I the son of man am? And their response was, well, some say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets or something like that. And Jesus says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And then they kind of got right down with it about who they thought that Jesus was. And Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Jesus says, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father which is in heaven. Therefore I say unto you that you are uh, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven here. But you see in that passage in Matthew 16 how Jesus uses kingdom of heaven and church interchangeably. It's because he is the founder of the church. So when we're looking at this parable here in in Matthew 25, he likens the kingdom of heaven to these ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Well, he doesn't say that that's the church, no, but they're in the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. And those in the church are in the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. So these ten represent people that are in the kingdom of heaven. They represent people that are in the church. But the analogies keep coming. See, the bridegroom, of course, is Christ. He's the one that's going to be coming back. That's why verse 13 closes with that admonition about watching and be careful. Because you do not know the hour or the day in which the Son of Man is coming. So the bridegroom is clearly Christ. The bride is not mentioned in this passage at all. But her role is assumed. No, the emphasis here, the point of emphasis is not upon the bride. It's upon the ten virgins and their responsibilities before the bridegroom. So as you look through this, you see that there are these different symbols, let's just say there, that are representative of the judgment day. The cry at midnight, that, that's, that's the cry of the second advent when Jesus comes back. And they're supposed to go out and meet him. And these servants that are attending to these different details and things of that nature. 
are supposed to be the servants of God, servants of Christ. And so, you know, you look through all of this and you see the different things that are employed here. There was a time when it, the he tarried, and while he tarried, they, they slept. But the point here is to ask a few questions about, well, what do some of these things mean and how do they apply to us? So in the first place, I would say, what do the lamps and the oil represent? Because this is the whole point. Those five virgins that were foolish are called foolish because while they had their lamps and they took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil, so they ran out when the bridegroom was actually coming. They weren't prepared. The basic lesson in this parable is about being prepared for when the Lord comes back. They were unprepared. The five who were wise were prepared. Even though the bridegroom tarried and they fell asleep, when he was there, when he did come, they all arose. And the five who were wise, because they had extra oil, they could go out and meet. And they would not surrender that oil because there might not be enough for us and you. Remember that in the passage here? So what is this oil and, and, and lamp? I think these are indicative of the work that these have prepared themselves for the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's just do a little thinking here. They're virgins. They're in the kingdom. That means that they are clean. This is not, lamps and oil is not some kind of uh, initial obedience to the gospel. It's not about their initial salvation or how they became how they came into the kingdom. That's not what the lamps and the oil are about. Because the verse starts off in verse 1 by telling us that they are in the kingdom of God. So the lamps and the oil don't represent something like that. The lamps and the oil represent the kind of life that they've lived after they've come into the kingdom. And the kind of life that they live is a life that's supposed to show some light to the world. And the kind of life that they live shows here that they are in this uh, state of cleanliness. They're, they're, they're clean. They're respectable. They're morally good. They're upholding things that would speak of morality. They're those kind of people. But there is this problem. And the problem has to do with not being prepared for the time when the Lord comes back. But it's not like, well, where they are unprepared just because they are living in open immorality. That's not the issue. It's not a situation where they're just not, they're just not attending to some kind of detail that relates to uh, their own personal conduct and so far as it is about their, their morals and their, their teaching. They are respectable. They're good church members, let's put it that way. But they're not prepared for the time when the Lord comes back. That can happen. Five were wise because they took extra oil. That is that they, while they were in the kingdom, continued to persevere and to grow, not only in faith and knowledge, but they continued to grow in maturity of spiritual things. But it's also about the work that they do in the kingdom. Their servants. His servants came out. They came out to meet him, to greet him. 
Well, that's what Christians are. Christians are servants. So what then is the issue? How come, how come some, how come five of them are not prepared? Well, because somewhere along the way, once they entered into the kingdom of God, once they became those good church members, uh, things begin to change. Sometimes something would happen. You know, sometimes you see people like that. You, you see folks that are there, they got there, and, and you can see them, and for a while they're there, and they're, they're partaking uh, of the things that are, are appropriate within the kingdom of God, and they're leading a clean life. That's not the issue. But somewhere along the way, their faith begins to wane a little bit. Something's happened. Somehow, somewhere, they're not seeing the need to continue to provide more oil. What they're doing is they're kind of just sort of living on, well, the fact that we're in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom. We're nice people. We're good people. We're not immoral people. That really isn't the question here. These virgins weren't immoral. They were nice people. They were in the kingdom. So what is it that causes that person's faith to somehow begin to diminish or their interest to diminish? You see it sometimes. You know, Rita's father preached for about 50 years. And he had this little story he used to tell. And it, it was about a little girl that fell out of bed. And the reason she fell out of bed was because she stayed too close to where she got in. She got in on the edge of the bed, she slept on the edge of the bed, and she fell out of the edge of the bed. And it's like that sometimes with people in the church. Sometimes they just stay too close to where they got in. That is, they don't really get in and are rooted and grounded in the faith. They don't really get in and, and establish those bonds of fellowship with other Christians. They don't really get in and develop spiritually and mature. Because why? Well, because they stay too close to where they got in. They're not somehow not quite willing to do something else. They don't want to go out and buy more oil. They're not going to bring extra oil. They're there. They're in the kingdom. They're in the church. That really, that really is kind of it. How did they get there? Well, I can tell you some ways in which people get there. They get there on their emotions. They've had a tragedy in their life. And that tragedy's caused them to think and in the course of all of that, there's a great deal of sympathy that's poured out because of the tragedy that they have endured. There's an emotional kind of a setting. This could be the death of someone, a loved one. This could be the loss of a job. It could be some other kind of a situation that occurs that brings about a, a very heightened emotional state. And out of that emotion, they make a decision. Could be that they get there because they've got good friends or relatives that are kind of we would say that they're wanting to encourage them to do the right kind of thing, and so they do, but, but for some people, you know, all of that encouragement is you're, you're just you're putting pressure on me, pressure on me to do something. And so to relieve that pressure, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. You know, what do you want me to do? Preacher, you want me to walk the aisle? You want me to be baptized? What, what, what will take the pressure off? And so they do that. And so they're there. For a while. But as you know, emotions come and go. And emotions subside. And when they do, if you're still on right where you got in, if you got in on emotion, you could very well leave on emotion. 
Because mark it down, there will be another tragic event in life. There will be another trauma of some kind. There will be another uh, surprise coming that's going to be hard for you to deal with. And when that time comes, maybe the emotion now turns to bitterness because I thought I'd done everything that people told me I should do. And I thought things are going to be better. But I still find that I've got problems. The five who were wise took extra oil because they knew to be prepared. After all, this wedding situation takes place and it's in the evening. And they don't know when the bridegroom is coming. But they know he's coming. And they know that the wedding will not conclude until he does come. And so they go prepared. They have the oil that's in their lamps. They have other oil that's in the vessels that they take with them. Now, I'm not saying that, look, salvation comes down to how much work you can do. Let's don't ever get to that kind of a, a conjecture. That's just not the case because, you know, salvation is not of works lest any man should boast. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And it's not. It's of grace. But these people are already in the kingdom. They're already likened unto the kingdom. They're there. But something's happening with them, and they're not prepared for the time when the Lord comes back. Well, you can see the application to this. It's all about the fact that we need to continue to do what we can to continue to grow and develop spiritually and in faith. And how does that happen? How does it come about? Well, in several different ways. One way, of course, if we're talking about the church, and we are at least in some part talking about the church, is that churches do things to try to help people to have opportunities to grow in the faith. That's what Bible class is all about. Churches worship God, and they worship Him, hopefully, in spirit and in truth. And so that's an opportunity for people to continue to grow in their reliance upon God. When we observed the Lord's Supper this morning, it wasn't just us that was here doing that. No, the Lord Jesus is with us, spiritually speaking, as we partake of these emblems. Because this is the reason he gave it when he gave it to the disciples that instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. There's a purpose and a reason for why it's here. And as you think of that purpose and reason why you are partaking of, of this of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. You're not just thinking to yourself, well, the bread tastes a little dry or the, fruit, the, the juice here was a little strong. That's not what you're thinking about. You're thinking about Jesus who died for us. You're thinking about the celebration that this is for us because of his celebration and his victory. We're thinking about what this really means. And that's, that's a time for spiritual growth and reflection. Churches do things that can help, but they can't do it all. You have a family. Family relationship, particularly families that are in Christ Jesus. You know, they used to have that saying, uh, those that pray together stay together. Well, there's a good bit of truth in that. There's a good bit of truth about a family unit 
where everyone is worshiping God, where everyone wants to be a Christian, where everyone wants to do what's right, where everyone wants to be mature in Christ. Because that solves a lot of problems in families sometimes. Because, you know, let's just face it. We blow our cool sometimes and we act in a way that's very unchristian and it brings all kinds of damage and harm in our entire family. If we mature to the point where we are able to handle those kinds of times and the anger that we might feel, the bitterness we might feel, where we understand, but I've, I, need, I need to handle this like a Christian would. Makes a difference. Makes a difference in life. What is fellowship? It's an opportunity to bond together. It's an opportunity to be with people of like faith. It's an opportunity to see that other people are growing in Christ too. And that some who perhaps have grown a little bit more than others need to be patient with those who are coming along. But that patience is seen as we are together when you're trying to accomplish something. You know, you think of, you think of a father who's training a son perhaps in his own trade. Let's, let's pick uh, an auto mechanic. So he's got a son coming up, or maybe a contractor, and he's got a son coming up, and they, those fathers want the son to learn the trade. They, they want to show him how to do the things, how to take care of everything. Well, they're going to have to have some patience because, sure enough, they're going to mess up somewhere during their training phase and all of that. It's kind of like that with us and our families and us in the church. Spirituality is not something that one all of a sudden just has. Spirituality is in relation to what you know of God and what you know of his word and what you know of your life and how you conduct your life. Well, that's why in Second Peter, Peter will talk about those Christian graces. And I heard Harold this morning talking about in our lesson from First Peter, but I know he's headed to Second Peter this next this next month. And you're going to learn about those Christian graces that help us to make our calling and election sure. That is the point in that passage in Second Peter. What's the point here? You know, I actually read there are some folks that say how selfish the five wise virgins were. They would not share their oil. Well, folks, they could not. They don't have the power to share their good works. They don't have the power to share their spiritual depth. They have the power of influence with one another. But they can't somehow transfer the state in which they are, the five wise virgins, and shift it over to the five foolish ones. They don't have the power to do that. You see, this is a situation where every person is responsible for his or her own growth, for his or her own state of preparedness, or lack thereof. Which is the very reason why in 2 Corinthians 5, and I believe it's in verse 10, but it's where Paul says that uh, we all shall bow before the judgment seat, give an account for the things that we have done in this life, whether they be good or whether they be bad. It's kind of like that. That's what's happening here. There is an accounting process underway here. 
Because when the five foolish virgins came to the house where the bridegroom was, the door was shut and they couldn't get in. And they cried out to the Lord and they said, open to us. And the Lord said, no, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Well, he knew them in verse 1. He knew they were in the kingdom in verse 1. But in verse 13, something, something now has happened. And what's happened is they have demonstrated their lack of being prepared for him. And so they don't get in. When the bridegroom came, those who were ready went into the house with him to the marriage. And that's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. You want to be living with, with him. You see those points of application just as well as I do. But there are some other things I just want to mention offhand here that this parable teaches us. It teaches us for one thing that once saved, always saved is certainly not true. Because these people were in the kingdom. They were all right. But now they can't get in. They're no longer with the bridegroom. They're not celebrating the marriage. They were unprepared. In some circles, there is a doctrine that's called the excess of righteousness. It, uh, it proceeds from Catholicism, but it, it has with it this idea that some people are so righteous, they've gone so far above their duty, morally speaking, that they have extra righteousness, which once they are dead, that extra righteousness can be granted with special prayers to help other people out of purgatory. Well, in the first place, the Bible knows nothing of purgatory. In the second place, you can't transfer the righteousness of one person to another. Well, didn't Jesus? Aren't we, if we're going to stand before God justified, isn't it going to be in the righteousness of Christ? Yes, but you've got to die for it. That's exactly right. You've got to die for it. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe he is who he says he is. You've got to be there. You've got to be willing to be there with him. You've got to die to your sin. You've got to be buried with Jesus. You've got to give the answer, the pledge of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ and be baptized into Jesus. You've got to do what Paul says in Romans 6 verses 1 through 4. Know ye not as many of us who have been baptized? That's what he is saying. What did we do? We put away the old man of sin. We died to sin. We were buried with him. We are risen with him to have new life. But see, that's an act of your faith in Jesus and what he did. Well, there's a little bit of difference there. Certainly, this does not teach us that universalism is true. It's just another teaching that says everybody, no matter who, no matter where, everybody is saved and going to be in heaven. Everybody. I guess it's everybody but these five foolish virgins. You see why it's important for us to study our, the Word of God, to know our Bible, to make the application, to let it make the application in our lives? And look, if this is a day and a time where you feel the need to do that, 
all we want to do is just encourage you. As we, as we sing this hymn, we just want to encourage people who may have something in their heart right now that they want to put before the Lord. And if you do, would you come as we stand and sing?